This episode of I Save That Podcast is made possible by the AVA Academy. AVA Academy is where you'll find the best-in-class, cutting-edge, vascular access education, from pick insertion to our ultrasound-guided peripheral IV course. For more information, subscribe to the I Save That Podcast, follow AVA on any social media platform, and become an AVA member today. Welcome to episode 14 of season 2 of the I Save That podcast. Ava, Director of Communications and Java Editor Eric Sager with you. Flying solo for the beginning of this episode, Ava, Director of Clinical Education Judy Thompson is currently enjoying a vacation and celebrating her birthday in New Zealand and Australia, petting koalas and doing other fun things. While Ava CEO Ramsey Nasrallah is knee-deep in 2020 planning, which is why you're stuck with me for what I promise will be a brief intro so we can go ahead and get to the two interviews featured on this month's episode. They're much more interesting to listen to than listening to me talk, so here's a quick preview on them. First, before she left for the Southern Hemisphere, Judy chatted with Dr. Hudson Garrett and Mark Rowe about ultrasound reprocessing, which continues to be a really hot topic in our specialty. You'll hear that right after a word from our sponsor in just a moment. The second interview we have on this episode is with Sinead Shields, one of the authors of the upcoming CE article in the winter 2019 issue of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. Sinead and I chat about an innovative technique their institution implemented recently in an attempt to reduce sticks for those liver transplant patients who are also difficult access patients. The winter 2019 issue of JAVA should be online sometime late next month, uh, that's December, so keep an eye out on AVA's social media and your email inbox for updates. And that's enough for me, uh, so right after the break, I'll turn it over to Judy, Mark, and Dr. Garrett. Thanks as always for listening. This episode of I Save That Podcast is made possible by the AVA Academy. AVA Academy is where you'll find the best-in-class, cutting-edge vascular access education, from pick insertion to our ultrasound-guided peripheral IV course. As always, you'll still be able to pick up CE credits through JAVA articles each quarter, and by attending virtual sessions from scientific meetings. AVA Academy takes vascular access education to the next level. We are developing insertion, care and maintenance courses for the full spectrum of vascular access devices and procedures. AVA Academy is open to the public, and AVA members will receive significant discounts on all education. For more information, subscribe to I Save That Podcast, follow AVA on any social media platform, and become an AVA member today. Hey, thanks everyone for tuning into the show this week. Uh, my name is Eric Sager, AVA Director of Communications, and we're joined uh, for this episode of the podcast with by Pat, past AVA president, Mark Rao, and Dr. Hudson Garrett, who has been on the podcast before, I believe last year it was, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Garrett, uh, and as well, obviously, AVA director of clinical education, Judy Thompson. They have all presented at AVA meetings before, which is partly what we're going to be discussing on this episode, but uh, Judy, I'll go ahead and hand it off to you so we can discuss high-level disinfection and everything about it. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Hello, gentlemen. I'm so happy you came on our podcast today. Um, we're going to get right into it. So a couple things. Mark, one of the reasons I, I definitely wanted you to be on this is this podcast today is you're, you're one of the in the trenches working clinicians right now, um, one of thousands, but leading a team in Little Rock that does everything from PIVs to, to ports. 
And um, Hudson, I've wanted you because you've been involved with us for so long with the high-level disinfection and leading this charge um, with myself and this in entire group that is working on it. But I just saw a little blurb that you presented at the FDA. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I did. So the uh, FDA holds a annual um, and sometimes quarterly medical advice advisory committee meeting that is a group of independent experts that are appointed by FDA that essentially provide them strategic guidance on dealing with key and complex medical device issues. And so the one yesterday was related to a medical device that ironically is semi-critical, um, and there was sort of an evaluation of what else should we do, which I think is really pertinent to today's topic of ultrasound transducer probes that are used in vascular access, because there's sort of this balance between having the clinical utility of that device, which is where you know Mark and his team are doing some excellent work in Little Rock, and balancing that with the patient safety and infection control risk associated with the use of the device, because we don't want to take something away, but we really want to incrementally improve the safety profile of how these devices are used and standardize their reprocessing practices. That sounds like that would have been a nerve-wracking presentation. It was definitely um, a, a very nerve-wracking presentation. I think I sat for an hour in the car afterwards just trying to decompress, but you know, I think it's important for um, associations like AVA to have seats at that table to not only drive strategic practice change, but to also work with clinicians that are at sort of the ground level like Mark that are leading teams out there to ensure that not only can we maintain these types of instruments um, and their utility appropriately, but we also train the staff. And I, that was really one of the key takeaways that Dr. Carrico and I tried to make at the AVA conference this year was that it's not just about the device, but it's equally as important to train the staff. And I have to say, after presenting to the RVAN meeting, Mark and the team and, and, and frankly, the whole Little Rock community has done an exceptional job of trying to be very aggressive in, in addressing some of these infection control challenges. I have to think that has a lot to do with you, Mark. He is the it man. has a lot to do with it has a lot to do with our entire group around here and in the Ava family as a whole. I just I just do want to get a big plug in there too. We did have Dr. Garrett in for our RVAN meeting, our Arkansas Vascular Access uh, Network, and then following uh, almost the next day, he spoke to the Arkansas APIC group. So he also then spoke to our infection preventionists who were on the ground in the hospitals. So the nice thing about it is our group. The vascular access got a, a lot of that information that he then in turn represented to a lot of the um, IP group. So we have some understanding too when they come to speak with us and talk to us about these changes. We have some working knowledge and, and vocabulary to be able to talk back to them in a way that we can be productive and move forward. And I think that's interesting that you bring that up, Mark, because what I've loved about the setup that you did was you wanted there to be no boundaries between the infection prevention community and the vascular access community. And having not only your IPs come to your vascular access meeting with our van, but then having some of your team also be, you know, directly involved in the APIC meeting is the right approach. And, you know, through the AVA guidance document and hopefully the process that we've created, which I think is actually the first time Ava's really approached something in this manner. We're looking at all of the single stakeholders that exist and trying to bring them into a, you know, less than siloed approach and try to make sure that everything is collaborative, transparent, and is also driving clinical practice change at the ground level. So I really want to commend you on your approach to making sure all the disciplines that are necessary to be a part of this conversation represented. Thanks. Definitely. It, it, can't ha it can't happen solo. And if you don't have um, at least one of your IPs on your speed dial, take them to uh, to lunch or go have a cup of coffee and just sit and talk and figure out a way that you can because we can't do it without them and they need us just as much too. Without a doubt, getting out of silos is so important and it's better for everybody. 
It makes work more fun as well. So well, the other thing too, Judy, I wanted to mention is that, you know, and we haven't really touched on this necessarily, but having clinical value analysis and purchasing be involved in this conversation is, is so important. And I think that'll be something that will be addressed in the AVA guidance document about ensuring that when these devices are coming into our facilities, that there's a proper vetting process that all the stakeholders, including vascular access and fr frankly, our medical staff that we work with that w might be using these things and, you know, carrying some of these transducers around in their pocket with some of the different um, technologies that have come out there. It's really important that we start at the bottom of when the process the, the product, if you will, comes in and, and look at all the different areas of utilization so that we can have some type of standardization. I couldn't agree with you more. So Hudson, to go back to the document. So I have had a lot of people ask me what's going on with it. When are we going to publish? Um, what I'd like to do is have you go over a little bit about the people that have not made it to either the webinar or a conference. Go over a little bit about what we're, what we're, going for, what we're going to talk about? So the, the guidance document is meant to be just that. It's really meant to be um, a implementable, if you will, that's probably not a word, but I just made it one. I like that word. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it, it's meant to be an approach that can be implemented in a variety of patient care settings with sort of three basic pillars. Um, the first pillar, which is what we're finishing right now, is really looking at clinical practice um, as far as an analysis of what's taking place today, um, sort of that baseline of knowledge of what are the clinical practices associated with the reprocess in these devices now. We've completed that. And I, I think that, you know, Judy, you can agree seeing with the survey results that they were highly variable. And that is of concern to us from a standardization standpoint because we realize that every time we have variability in clinical process, we have potential opportunity for patient safety gaps to occur. And really, the second piece of that is building a comprehensive clinical education program that is designed to target a certainly our AVA membership, but also to be used by the AVA membership to go out to their stakeholders. And again, I, I want to give kudos to Mark for sort of being a perfect role model for this by getting the infection preventionist engaged in this process. So that's sort of the first bucket. The next one, which I think is going to be very exciting, and this is what we're going to be doing in the year 2020, is looking at that broader stakeholder engagement to look at, okay, who are the people that touch this device? value analysis, regulators, there's clinicians, there's, you know, healthcare leadership, <clears throat> and of course the device manufacturers. And, you know, Ava's pretty uniquely positioned in my opinion because it's not just founded on clinical practice and it's not just a, a, an organization of membership for clinicians. It's also got the manufacturing community. And when I look at the technologies that come to market, they're driven by industry. And so I think we have to be very careful about this sort of, you know, fine red line between industry and clinicians and say, the patients need our collaboration. Our collaboration can result in improvements, whether they be product or process or personnel or training, it doesn't matter, but we have to do it together. The second phase of this is building a clinical competency matrix that's really, um, and this would be perfect for somebody like Mark who's in a leadership position to say, how do I make sure that all of my personnel on my team have the exact same training, have the exact same process, and can have sort of a form formal approach um, to this? And then the last piece is looking at an independent research agenda. There are going to be gaps in what we don't know, and it's important that AVA through the foundation can drive strategic research opportunities that are transparent, non-biased, not industry-driven, but are really addressing some of those key practice questions. 
And then the last bucket, which is sort of our forward-thinking strategic approach, is looking at sort of innovation. How do we foster new product development? How do we give those ideas to industry in a transparent way that allows industry to react? And oddly enough, Judy, you led in with the FDA panel. This was something that was brought up yesterday in my uh, testimony about, you know, FDA and CDC and others have put out sort of a wish list of improving and fostering more innovative medical device changes. There's nothing saying that AVA can't sort of adopt that and, and almost adapt it to vascular access so that we have a better propensity to get things through the 510K uh, clearance process. And finally, we have evolving guidelines that clinicians can use. And so, you know, the long and the short is our goal is to have sort of this next iteration of this document out as a Christmas present um, by the end of the year. Um, and then that will be sent out for public comment. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, and Judy, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time Ava has actually done a formal public comment. And we're really excited about that because I think it gives people an opportunity to see the work, to sort of synthesize it, and also provide their, their, their comments and feedback on it. doesn't mean that we're going to have to agree with everything, um, but it really is a way that transparently allows AVA to be a leader, not only in vascular access, but more importantly in patient safety, because we know that good vascular access improves patient safety. 100%. And you're right. This is the first time we have sent out for public comment and excited about it and um, can't wait to see what some of the comments come back at. Now, Mark, as far as what you are the boots on the ground, so to speak. Tell me about how practice change, what what the practice change is that you've implemented and what are you either looking forward to or a little bit concerned about coming out, coming forward with this? Thanks, Judy. And, and can I just start this side of my little blurb here to, with a question to Dr. Garrett? Because a lot of the clinicians who are the boots on the ground are asking me, why do I have to do this if I don't have a insertion infection issue. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, it's a shame that Dr. Carrico is not on here because she has this beautiful phrase <laughs> and I always butcher it, but it's something like the absence of data is not the absence of problem or, and I probably butchered that, so I apologize. But essentially we said the same thing about clapsy infections from peripheral lines for many years. Now we're sort of in the dilemma with midlines um, where people are sort of trying to skirt around issues. And so uh, many instances of infection prevention, especially with medical devices, are not reported. Um, that was one of the key things that was brought up by the FTA, looking at the public reportable database, that they know that these infections are underreported. They know these incidences of contamination are underreported. But oddly enough, there's a consistent factor that we find typically with outbreaks associated with medical devices. And it's, it's two things. It's improper training of the user and also improper maintenance of the device. And so, you know, even in your own RVAN meeting, Mark, I, I remember there was a conversation that we were having about maintaining these devices. And if the plastic was cracked or if there was sort of a hole in the side, but it still functioned, was it safe to use? And the answer is 100% no, it's not safe to use. If we have that break in that integrity of the device, then we have to remove it from service. So I think the, the, the way to answer this question to our colleagues is that it's not necessarily that this is a new problem. It's, it's really more that we're paying attention to a problem that has most likely existed for a period of time. And what we want to do from the AVA perspective is to be leaders in this. We want to drive the practice change before someone else drives it for us. Um, and I always make this comment in, in lectures across the country 
that, you know, when nurses say, well, everything's written by physicians. And I said, well, the only person that can change that is you. So if we don't drive our own practice change from AVA as the Vascular Access Association, then someone else is going to drive it, most likely through a regulatory perspective. And the last piece that I'll mention is that Joint Commission was also in attendance at yesterday's meeting. And they talked about reprocessing specifically with medical devices is the number one area of citation for Joint Commission uh, surveyors right now. And so I think that's another perspective that our members are certainly deeply involved in is our survey readiness. And, you know, I sort of hate that term because we don't want to just be survey ready every three years when they come. We want to be patient ready every single time our patient needs us. I definitely agree, Hudson. But I think a lot of our membership focus on the fact that I don't have an infection issue, so I don't really need to change. And we just really need to look at the perspective of you have a potential for exposure Absolutely. that we need to change. And it's not right. that you're doing something wrong. It's just that we want you to be able to do it better and to decrease that potential for exposure. So some of the things that, that the management or the, the, the leaders of groups and teams and stuff are having to look at is, is the cost of high-level disinfection. There are many ways to accomplish it. Some are more timely than others. Um, there is no wipe out there. Just, just right. so everyone knows, there is not a high-level disinfection wipe. And if you think you have one, you don't, unless you're, <laughs> you know, in another country that might have one that is not cleared by the FDA to use. But if you're uh, in the U.S. or in any of the surrounding areas and stuff, there is not a wipe that meets this, this criteria. Um, you may have a mid-level wipe or a low-level wipe, but not a high-level wipe. So we're looking at the cost of such a machine. We're looking at the cost of the supplies to maintain and run that machine. We're looking at the logging requirements for the high-level disinfection and any EMR requirements for the documentation to be placed in that EMR system. We're looking for at time flow issues. You know, with the present volume that you may have to do, can you add a potential of 15 minutes of processing time from point A to point B, so maybe adding 30 minutes per procedure for that high-level disinfection. Can you afford not to do that? Um, can you, in your budgeting, have extra transducers so that one is always ready and cleaned and ready to go for another procedure? Those are the types of things that I think the, the leads of teams and stuff are having to look at in our financial budget. I think those are real, real issues. And, you know, to be completely transparent with what the objective of this is, the objective of this document is to drive, to your point, incremental change that is going to provide for the best possible solution and standardized outcome of safety for our patients. And so let's take an example, which I've seen, and I think, Mark, you've seen this as well, where there are medical devices that are used, and not just transducers, but just devices in general that are used in hospitals and healthcare settings right now, where the manufacturers reprocess an instruction, say, to wipe it down with a wet wash rag with soap and water. And I think we would all agree that that is grossly not acceptable, and that is not within the standards of the evidence-based practices from CDC. And so that would be an example of a device where I would say, get that out of your hospital immediately. There are other devices that can, you know, as you beautifully mentioned, undergo intermediate or low-level disinfection already. Um, you know, as it relates to intermediate versus low, there's absolutely no reason with today's products and solutions on the market that anyone should be using a low-level disinfectant for this purpose. And so if you're using low-level, your first immediate move would be to go to an intermediate-level disinfectant wipe. 
Um, and then, you know, certainly machines or uh, devices that have the capability of undergoing HLD today, then we should look at operationalizing that. Um, and I know Judy's received several emails from attendees at the conference that have either already done this um, or are doing it, um, some that have converted after um, the conference. And so recognizing that every healthcare facility is different, we want to make sure we're moving the needle in the right direction, working within the context and the confines of what is available in the market today, and frankly, working with regulators to say, provide very clear guidance so that something that's been on the market since 1999, when it's updated, is well within the scope of the CDC recommendations so that, you know, people like you, Mark, that are, you know, using these products and making decisions have all of that information. And I, I think, finally, uh, look at sort of the gap that exists with the knowledge um, of vascular access clinicians and, quite frankly, also infection preventionists of this area because, you know, you don't go to school to learn about 510Ks. You don't learn necessarily about the regulatory approval and things like that. But in reality, we're responsible for that. We need to know that information. And so I, I really want to commend Ava for trying to bring all the different folds together, if you will, um, to address this complex issue. And, and having folks like you, Mark, that not only understand the potential risk and sort of I, I like to look at infections as invisible risk because we don't necessarily see them until it happens. Um, and that's a unique opportunity. Agreed. A point that you made, Mark, and both um, Hudson and Mark, about the wipes. So we did a survey where we had about 70% of the people respond thinking they were doing high-level disinfection in the United States. So there, there is a big disconnect in the knowledge but the other part I really wanted to talk about is what the process was with that. So you, you have a probe that has a lot of gel on it. And a lot of folks don't even clean the gel prior to doing the disinfection with the wipe they have. But then think of the complexity of wiping down that probe and all the nooks and the crannies and the divots and mark the probes that have cracked divots. Um, or a needle, a mark where the needle has repeatedly hit the probe itself. And you have almost a, a channel for the needle to go through. So that is almost impossible to clean with a wipe, in my opinion. So, but think about it this way, Judy. So if you drive down, and, and obviously not every state has the same laws, but I know here in Georgia, if you drive down the street and your headlight has fallen out, but I still have another headlight and the device, if you will, the car still works. Is that safe? And the answer is no. Um, and so, you know, and that's our car. That's our personal vehicle. What we're talking about here is just as complex, but the risk is just as high. Um, and so I, I think we need to take better ownership of our devices. And I, I think in vascular access world, if you will, we do a pretty good job of sort of um, preserving, if you will, the, the ultrasound transducers because they usually live within the department. That being said, we need to be vigilant about inspecting that device after every single use to ensure that if there's any type of visible mechanical or functional issue or deficiency, that we remove that device from service. Now, let's be real. If we take that device out of service and that's our only device, then we can hurt ourselves because 
we don't have a way to provide for ultrasound. So it's important that we have a backup system, whether it's borrowing an ultrasound from a different department. Um, and, and frankly, I think some of these handheld ultrasounds have a lot of potential from a cost perspective. I've got one actually sitting right here on my desk that was about $2,000, which is a, a drop in the bucket compared to some of the larger systems that are currently out there in the market. And so there, there's many different ways to skin the cat, but we really need to look at sort of a holistic approach to providing vascular access with the most evidence-based technology of ultrasound, but also having an equal attention to infection prevention and control. Well said. And Hutchin, you brought up something too when we're talking about uh, lower level versus mid-level versus high-level mm -hmm. disinfection. That would be a per perfect conversation to begin with your infection preventionist. When you're at that little coffee chat and say, many of these people don't really know what they're wiping with. They don't know if it's a low or mid-level, especially when the sense that they were answering that they thought they were doing high-level. So understanding what the difference between a lower level and a, a mid-level is and right. finding out what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, you know, looking at the IFU of your device and what is appropriate for the cleaning of that device and which area because there are many lists only for the transducer and then there's another list for the body and or screen of the, uh, the actual machine itself. So know that one wipe doesn't cover the whole thing. So you have to be vigilant and looking for that. And another thing you brought up, you also brought up about the machines that are kind of owned and or, you know, coddled by each department. But some of our smaller facilities may have one machine that sits in a corner and in a closet that is used by everybody. So as you said, it must be bus police before its use and after its use, because you may have been very diligent with taking care of it, but someone before you or after you may not have been. And, the, and thus, you know, causing damage to the machine that is not evident except for inspection. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I, it's it's such a complex issue. And, and the thing that sort of scared me from the survey was where our baseline is today, not just with standardized practices, but frankly, with the knowledge base of this topic. And so I, I sort of relate it back to drug inserts um, that we get with our medications. And I frequently ask, especially nurses, I said, what's the last time you looked at a drug insert? And there's literally no hands that come up. Um, and, and so I think it's an opportunity for us to take a step back and say, we are the experts. Um, and as the experts, we need to be at expert level, not just with the procedure, but with the safe handling of the device that we count on so reliably to do the procedure with the minimal amount of discomfort and adverse event to our patients. And so, you know, it gets back to that clinical risk benefit analysis that we talked about earlier. Um, but, you know, if we can create a dialogue, create a conversation, and frankly, have a seat at the table, then we're going to be able to move that needle forward. And again, it's always better to be at the forefront and driving your own practice change than to have regulatory agencies that don't know anything about our practice actually change it for us. Yeah, and just to add to that, Hudson, just, just to clarify, too, I think many of, of our AVA body are out there saying, oh, well, they're just talking about pick insertions or other types of, of devices maybe that our surgeons or interventional radiologists may or may not be placing and stuff. So. Just to clarify, what about the, the as I air quotes here, the lowly, and I, I say that uh, very jokingly, peripheral IV, is, is this going to affect that? Yes. Well, you know, when I, I, it's, anatomy class has been a while back, 
but last I checked, it was the same vein that was peripherally as it was centrally. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I, I jokingly and sarcastically say that to remind our brains that the infection has no boundaries, regardless of site of insertion of the catheter or the device. Um, and the environment, the clinical environment in which we function, whether it's the transducer, a computer, a cell phone, a stethoscope, a pulse oximeter, doesn't matter, now plays a scientific role in transmission. And so we really want to think about the scope of the services that we provide and you know, recognize, to your excellent point, that it doesn't matter what type of catheter, if it's peripheral, and, uh, if it's a central catheter, if it's a pick, if it's a subclavian, I don't care. It's really about making sure that when we do a procedure, which is the use of ultrasound for the insertion of a catheter, that we're doing it consistently. So, you know, this is very similar to the, the whole NHSN thing with CDC, where people were saying, I'll just insert midlines because they're not reported. <clears throat> And I hate to tell people, but CDC caught on to that real quick. Um, they're, not, they're, they're very smart folks, and they're looking at this data, and we want to give them good data so that we can make better practice change. So you're absolutely right in, in making sure that people are reminded that this is something for vascular access. And I, quite frankly, go a little bit off into the ditch when I hear people say, I'm a pick nurse. No, you're not. You're a vascular access professional. And that may be a nurse, that may be a respiratory therapist, it may be a variety of different people, including physicians, that may play a role in that. And so when we talk about ourselves collectively, it helps represent the diversity that we have in the profession, just as the diversity in this practice is what we have to actually cut out. We need to bring it back to a standardized practice to reprocess these probes for every single use to protect every single patient. Totally agree, Hudson. And I bring, bring that question up just so that it, our, all of our members can hear that it's beyond just the scope of placing a central line. It's the, it's the use of that device in Absolutely. any issue that we're having to deal with. Absolutely. Yep. The, the other aspect of this is, I know I have a lot of folks that have mentioned, well, if we have to do this, we won't be able to use ultrasound. That is 100% against everything we want to do. So everything we're talking about is pragmatic. We want the use of ultrasound on 100% of lines. So we are not going to jump off the cliff and say, if you cannot do X, then you can't do a procedure with ultrasound. So as Hudson well, mentioned before, we want to do a stepwise process to get you guys. Well, there. and keep in mind that leadership is most often and, and best defined in times of adversity. And so I don't necessarily classify this as adversity as much as it is in, in general terms, quite frankly, a resistance to change that we see in healthcare pretty rampantly. And so we want to ensure that professionals involved in this field are taking necessary steps to protect patients um, and that we are being aggressive in our approach, certainly utilizing existing data, but also being forthcoming and sort of being strategic in our approach to look at what could be happening, what are our standardized practices that are missing, and then how can we address those from a proactive perspective versus waiting for an outbreak. And, and I think the best example in vascular access is that we saw this with ultrasound gel. And why do we now use sterile single-use ultrasound gel? Because of outbreaks. And we don't want to be in that same position with our, our, our transducers. So if we can start now and, and use the next few years to make improvements, both in practice and product, then we can, we can move the needle forward. Well, as we progress on this, can I get both of you guys to come back on another podcast? Yeah, we'll just need to discuss our pay because Mark and I would like to have a pay raise from <laughs> zero to zero. Well, I would even offer up a cup of coffee down the road, maybe. Maybe. I'm sure it'll be virtual. Maybe. maybe. Well, thank you both so much. It's been informative. I'm sure people will um, 
love to hear what uh, you guys have to tell us and we'll get you next time as well. So thank you so much for jumping on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Appreciate it. And welcome to the latest Beyond the Manuscript segment of the I Save That podcast. It's been a little while since we've welcomed an author of an article published in the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access to the show. But in this episode, I'm pleased to welcome Sinead, excuse me, Shields, a hepatology nurse practitioner at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Sinead, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Eric. Um, very happy to be here sharing, having a bit of a chat about our work. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to to chat with you, even though we currently sit halfway across the world from one another. Uh, but Sinead is one of the lead authors on the manuscript titled Acceptability of External Jugular Venipuncture for Patients with Liver Disease and Difficult Venous Axis. Now, difficult venous axis is fairly common in lim- liver patients, as I understand it, that require blood collection using traditional peripheral approaches. Sinead, the goal of your study was to understand the experience of these difficult venous access liver patients while also discovering how acceptable peripheral venipuncture was versus external jugular venipuncture. Can you tell me a little bit about how the idea for this study surfaced for you and your team? So this project goes back a good 15 years, Eric, for us. Um, or those years ago, oh, wow. we did a survey. Yeah, we, we, we had a sense then that our, our patients were telling us at the time that, you know, they hated having their blood tests done, um, that it was tricky, um, that they had difficult veins. So we did a, a bit of a survey um, in our routine liver outpatients cohort, and um, of them, a quarter of them said they were reluctant to have venipuncture because of their difficult veins. And in our outreach clinic, in our drug health service, um, that rose to two-thirds of those patients said that they didn't want to have blood tests done. And even though some of these patients, but not all, had a history of injection drug use and were in our service um, to um, access hepatitis C treatments at the time, uh, which required close monitoring, or they had cirrhosis and they were pre or post liver transplant, and, and regular blood collection was really vital. And this was it was a real problem for us hearing that they really didn't want to be having their blood tests done. There wasn't a lot of published work on, on how to address this barrier to care at the time. Uh, Ultrasound-guided venipuncture wasn't quite so common then, and we had a chat, a local team discussion with our medical colleagues and our anaesthetist colleagues because we're, we had access, you know, being a big, busy teaching public hospital, we had a lot of resources, and a new protocol was developed which involved... Um, for those people who were identified as being particularly tricky to bleed, um, that they could be bled from their exter- external jugular vein, from their neck vein. Mm-hmm. So initially, um, at the beginning, uh, the anaesthetist would do this procedure, but it very quickly became obvious that this was a simple procedure that could be done by suitably trained nurses who were experienced being a puncturist already. Um, we developed a training package. Um, it was approved at local and institutional level, and it became part of our usual practice. Oh, wow. And this went on for this went this went on for many years. We published about it way back in 2007, um, but and and it's been part of our usual practice. But we've over the years that our patients have, whilst they've been very grateful that when they come to us, this is a procedure they can have, and blood collection is really easy. Um, when they go to other services, they they continue to have to endure the difficulties that they 
had associated with having to endure peripheral vena puncture. And they told us horror stories of when they were at some of these services. And, and, and they would tell them that if they, they'd say, oh, when we go to RPA liver clinic, they'd bleed us from our neck. And the other services would look in horror and wouldn't really believe that this was a safe practice. And so we, we basically felt that we owed it to our patients to demonstrate that this strategy that was working in our service could perhaps work on others too. Um, and so that's how, that's, how we, that's how things began with this project. It's a significant amount of time to, to work on such a, a project like this. And you mentioned you owed it to your patients, and I think that that's really great. And a lot of our listeners of this podcast can can relate to that because a lot of people you know, are kind of on the ground, nurses and nurse practitioners like yourself. So how did you and your team go about conducting it, you know, putting it together? You said you got it approved on the local and the national level, level right? You know, what, what kind of things did you have to do to make that happen? And what kind of things did you have to guard against if there was any to put it together? The, the actual procedure itself, um, that was some simple documentation, a simple training program. It involved the anesthetist uh, training, you know, like many training programs uh, in vascular access teams you you know watch a few do a few under supervision get some cases logged and um, be demonstrated or be accredited in this additional skill um, that's quite usual practice for nurses and and to have the documentation around that to um, to demonstrate that that nurses um, credentials doing that procedure mm -hmm. so that was no problem um, and then getting hospital approval and um, a department and hospital approval for, for the nurses doing this. Uh, that was all quite straightforward. Um, then when it came to evaluating this practice, um, we, uh, we, we developed a research project. We, we decided to do a, um, a qualitative project because that would give us you know, this really rich data that the patients were, were telling us uh, to describe their experiences of venipuncture over the years and, and to be able to compare um, their experiences of having venipuncture using traditional peripheral routes to having venipuncture through this alternate option of having it from their neck veins. And that, that was really, um, it was quite harrowing actually some of the stories that they told us about and when when we were going through their the data that we collected i remember reading the you know some of the things that you put in the manuscript there it was it was pretty glaring that there was a ton of fear you know and there's i'm sure there were stigmas that patients also expressed during that i mean how did you and your team like deal with that like how are the conversations with that during the interview process so the conversations some of them are quite harrowing the patients were amazing they were so happy to to share this information and to knowing that this information there was a good chance that this information would get out there um, they described um, all the pre-preparation with hydration with exercise allocating lots of time if they knew they needed to have a, a, a blood test um, before they had the option of EJV available to them they said it was stressful it was like an like a mission they had um, they had to deal with the inevitable burden of dealing with failed attempts. And one chap described who's been a puncher taking an hour or two with two or three people having a go, and then he'd walk out with eight holes in his arm and no blood, with instructions to come back the next day for more people to try. Sometimes wow. a doctor might be available with an ultrasound, and that wasn't successful. There was a real negative attitude of staff when they noticed old track marks on someone, and, and people were made to feel that this problem was brought on themselves and that they that they weren't treated as an equal to others. 
Um, one chap described this public display of having his arms warmed in water, being asked confidential information in front of other patients and staff taking turns to try bleeding in between other patients. A woman who had a liver transplant felt she needed to be worthy of her donated organ. She couldn't say anything to the doctors who would stick the needle in and be pushing it around and hurting her. So people reported multiple attempts from multiple services. It was traumatic, it was bruising, it was dead ends, it was clogged needles. Um, if they made an effort to to guide the blood collector to where the most suitable vein might be, they were either dismissed or ignored, or clinicians took offence. They felt frustrated, powerless, disrespected, not listened to. If they requested a preferred blood collector who had greater expertise, this caused tension between the patient and the service. They weren't seen as a reliable source of information. And, you know, and it just kept coming. And, you know, they were just, the patients were so relieved to be able to share this information. Um, and this was telling us about their experiences prior to having the option of blood collection via their EJV available right. to them. And, and then in contrast, when they were describing um, their blood collection procedures after uh, they had this procedure available to them, it, they described a way more acceptable procedure than what they had endured previously. They, there certainly was some initial apprehension. It was a bit, little bit scary for some, but after they had the procedure explained, and had it performed and saw how, saw how easy and simple it was, their um, trepidation was, was overcome. One chap said that it was liberating of stress, of time, of pain. Um, the procedure would take one minute instead of 40 minutes. Instead of having multiple unsuccessful attempts, uh, having blood collection from their EJV worked first time without bruising or trauma. Um, one chap said that it just made his life so much easier for him and for the blood collectors. They had a greater sense of control, um, and, and but they really wished that this procedure was available more. And when other services did seem scared by the idea of it, um, one woman wanted uh, suggested that that people like her who had this medical condition of having you know tricky veins um, should be able to have a bracelet, like an alert bracelet, that she could use to um, empower her conversations with other clinical services to be able to say, but look, you know, you have to listen to me now. I've got this thing that shows you, you know, I've got evidence that I'm tricky to bleed. You don't need to keep trying. Um, sure. they, they, and they, and they, and a big thing was the stigma. They felt that there was no stigma experienced having this procedure done and the supportive staff accepted their condition and had found a solution and stigma was a really big part of their of the problem previously so they they overwhelmingly preferred it so for us it's a it's a no-brainer you know we'll certainly continue to use this procedure in our service it, it works um, for our service it doesn't work for every patient not everyone has got suitable neck veins. We have, in more recent years, added um, ultrasound-guided venipuncture also to our um, repertoire of, of, of options that are available to, to people with difficult veins. Um, but that takes um, also takes training, takes extra equipment, takes you know also needs expertise being developed, and so it's not. Uh, it's not a overwhelming alternate option, you know. Services just need. Sure. I think we think of services have all the options that that would help um, their patients.
Well, it sounds incredibly emotional. I can't even imagine what those conversations were like with with the Very patients. And, I, and I've read the manuscript mm-hmm. where you have you cited some of them. And that's it's pretty incredible. And it's definitely it sounds like a novel and innovative idea. So I really applaud you and your team. And, you know, as you move forward here, you mentioned that you intend to continue to, to place it in your as part of your practice, even though not every patient could be um, accessed that way. But for listeners of the podcast, and subscribers of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access who, who read this study, you know, is that kind of what you wish that they take away from, from your work here is that this is a potential option that could provide, you know, better vascular access treatment for, for patients? For sure, for sure. Um, I, hopefully our work will help get the message out there that, um, that patients do find this a real problem. Um, there is other work out there that um, showing that um, sometimes, um, as clinicians, you know what might become quite normal to us and acceptable to us is not necessarily normal and acceptable to our patients. And sometimes, in very busy services, we need to stop and and listen to that and think about um, what what we're doing and how we can what options do we need to look at to to improve things for our patients. But Certainly, we recommended that three unsuccessful attempts should trigger a specialist referral for an approach with a higher success rate. And that's sort of two for three being sort of one person might need a second go and then they may need to call a second person, but they shouldn't be having uh, any more than one turn also. Um, And that services should be monitoring the, the information of how many unsuccessful attempts they're having at bleeding people. Uh, are stabbing people and and if they are in a service with a high difficult venous access rate and 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 a lot of efforts and a lot of repeated stabbings being needed for their patients they really need to consider uh, revising their protocols to include either this option or or consider other options that work in, within their service it's all about improving patient care and i think that you and your line. team have have yeah you you've done that at least, and i think that this this work you know, it definitely exhibits that. So uh, listeners can read Shanae's and her team's work in the final 2019 issue of JAVA, which is scheduled to be online around Christmas time and also sent to your mailbox around then. Shanae, I really appreciate your time and taking, you know, it's really early where you are in Australia. So I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with me about this manuscript. And I look forward to to publishing it in our journal. My pleasure, Eric. Can I just, um, before I finish, can I just say a very big thank you to not only all our patients who have been so so enormously to this, but also to my two colleagues, um, Sue Mason and um, Janice Gulick. Um, Sue is another advanced practice nurse uh, who I've been working with for many years, who's um, who's been very passionate about this project over a very long time and um, Janice Gulick provided us with uh, the research mentoring and expertise to complete the project and um, personally I'm truly grateful to both of them. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought them up because I had them written down in my notes here and I completely walked over that part. So thank you for giving them a shout out. The three of you have done masterful work here and I think that our listeners and those who subscribe to Java will definitely appreciate it and help enhance their practice. So thank you to all of you. Thanks, Eric. It's Eric back again with a quick look at the local AVA Network events scheduled for December 2019, which is not only the final month of 2019, but the final month of the decade. 
On Tuesday, December 3rd, Golf Van and R-Van kick off the month with meetings in Tampa, Florida and Little Rock, Arkansas. In Tampa, Darlene Socha, Katie Freight, and Sandra Mayner will share stories from their experiences at the National AVA Scientific Meeting. That kicks off at 6 p.m. at St. Joseph's Hospital in the Medical Arts Building. Then at 6.30 in Little Rock, Jim Lacey is set to give a presentation on catheter technology and an associated risk reduction strategy at TRIO's Pavilion in the park. The deadline to RSVP is December 2nd for that meeting, so if you're going to be in town, be sure to email rvan2009 at gmail.com. That's rvan2009 at gmail.com. One CE credit will be available at this meeting. On Thursday, December 5th, Flavan will host a meeting at Cooper's Hawk in Orlando. Networking starts at 6.30 and is set to be followed by presentations from Heidi Baker, who is Flavan's 2019 AVA Scientific Meeting Scholarship winner, and Dr. Laurel Wirtz, who will discuss an evidence-based approach to CVAD care and maintenance. And finally, OK Van convenes on December 12th to hear from Michelle Biscassi. Her presentation is titled, Decreased Vascular Access Complications, the Positive Impact on Patients, Clinicians, and Healthcare Settings. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We want to once again thank our fabulous interviewees, Dr. Hudson Garrett, Mark Rao, and Sinead Shields for taking time to talk with us for this episode of the I Save That podcast. As always, thanks to Dabney Coleman, and Ava wishes everyone a safe and happy Thanksgiving. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.